0: So it's starting at uh, 2 Kings chapter 6 from verse 15. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And then we go to verse 24. Sometime later, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mobilised his entire army and marched up and laid siege to Samaria. There was a great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver and a quarter of a cab of seed pods for five shekels as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall a woman cried to him help me my lord the king the king replied if the lord doesn't help you where can I get help for you from the threshing floor from the wine press then he asked her what's the matter she answered this woman said to me give up your son so we may eat him today and tomorrow we'll eat my son so he cooked my son and ate him The next day I said to her, Give up your son so we may eat him. But she had hidden him. When the king heard the woman's words, he tore his robes. As he went along the wall, the people looked and they saw that under his robes, he had sackcloth on his body. He said, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if the head of Elisha, son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Let me go to chapter 7, verse 3, where the siege is lifted. Now there were four men with leprosy at the entrance of the city gate. They said to each other, why stay here until we die? If we say we'll go into the city, the famine is there and we'll die. If we stay here we will die. So let's go into the camp of the Aramaeans and surrender. If they spare us we live, if they kill us then we die. At dusk they got up and went to the camp of the Aramaeans. When they reached the edge of the camp no one was there. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army. So that they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired the Hittite and Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in the dusk and abandoned their tents, their horses and donkeys. They left the camp as it was and ran for their lives. The men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp, entered one of the tents and ate and drank. Then they took silver, gold and clothes and went off and hid them. They returned and entered another tent and took some things from it and hid them also. Then they said to each other, What we are doing is not right. This is a day of good news and we are keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. So they went and called out to the city gatekeepers and told them, We went into the Aramean camp and no one was there, not a sound of anyone, only tether horses and donkeys and the tents left just as they were. The gatekeepers shouted the news and it was reported within the palace. The king got up in the night and said to his officers, I will tell you what the Arameans have done to us, they know we are starving, so they have left the camp to hide in the countryside thinking they will surely come out and then we will take them alive and get into the city one of his officers answered have some men take five of the horses that are left in the city their plight will be like that of all the Israelites left here yes they will only be like all those Israelites who are doomed so let us send them out to find what happened so they selected two chariots with their horses and the king sent them after the Aramean army he commanded the drivers go and find out what has happened They followed them as far as the Jordan and they found the whole road strewn with the clothing and equipment the Arameans had thrown away in their headlong flight. So the messengers returned and reported to the king. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Arameans. So a seer of the fireman's flour sold for a shekel and two seers of barley sold for a shekel as the Lord had said. Now it's hot isn't it? (laughs)
1: I know it's obvious, but I mean, over the last few years, I have done the very typical British thing of moaning that we haven't had a proper summer. And then, of course, this year, it's absolutely roasting, and I'm now moaning that it's too hot. I'm just never happy. The thing is, I know that the high 30s can feel very uncomfortable, but it's not really that surprising, is it? I mean, the sun's core, I know it's a long way away but it burns at 15 million degrees centigrade and that is the result of continuous nuclear fusion reactions at its core which are the equivalent to, let me get this right, 10 billion hydrogen bombs going off every single second. The sun is a million times bigger than the earth so yes it gets hot in the summer. (laughs) If the sun were to disappear, life on this earth as we know it currently would cease. We are dependent upon it. The sun is amazing. But here's an interesting thought. If you take something as small and as insignificant as a pound coin, I don't have one on me, I forgot one, and hold it in the right place, you can block out the sun. Something relatively small and insignificant can block your view of something enormous and majestic. Now to say that the sun dwarfs a pound coin, would, uh, you know, to say that's an understatement would be an understatement. We all know that the sun is immeasurably bigger than a pound coin, but sometimes, it's a matter of perspective. And if we hold the pound coin close enough, the pound coin looks bigger than the sun. My almost daily prayer is for proper perspective. The things of this world can often feel so tangible and real and demanding that they draw my focus. They begin to seem like the most important things in the world, but that's not because they are. That's because I have lost perspective. I have allowed something relatively small and insignificant to hide something enormous and awesome in today's passage we see that Elijah keeps his head when all around him are losing theirs and he does that not by trusting in himself but by trusting in his God he sees that his problems are real but he knows that his God is real and his God is bigger Elijah keeps things in perspective And in this passage, he sees point one, a God who lifts the veil, point two, a God who shows us what we think we want, and point three, a God who rescues. Now before we jump into those points, it's helpful to say that we spent the last three weeks looking at the life and miracles of Elijah with a J. Well, over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at Elisha with an S, who was Elijah's predecessor. He, was, he took over as Israel's prophet. The evil king Ahab and queen Jezebel, who we saw in last week's passage, have been killed. But unfortunately, their son, Jurem, turns out to be a bit of a chip off the old block. In chapter 6, the king of Aram attempts to ambush the king of israel that's the beginning of the chapter he sends raiding parties into israel's territory but the problem is that god keeps telling elisha what the king of aram has planned and elijah keeps warning the king of israel that there's an army waiting for them to ambush them the king of aram is enraged by this And at first he assumes that some of his own men must have turned against him and be acting as spies informing Israel what he's doing. And they're obviously very quick and very keen to point out it's not us, it's that pesky prophet, Elisha. So the king realises that he's first going to have to deal with Elisha and he turns his focus towards him. He discovers that he's held up in the city of Dothan. So under the cover of darkness, the Arameans move a large force full of chariots and horses and surround the city of Dothan. Now these were obviously skilled fighting men because they do this under cover of darkness and they do it so that no one in the city is any the wiser. It's not until daybreak that anything's realized. And that's where we pick the passage up in verse 15 of chapter six. We see Elisha's servant rise early to find that they are completely surrounded. He exclaims, oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? Now things look bleak for the people in the city. It's hard for us to imagine today just how bleak they looked. Now we're all too familiar with political instability and we know that that instability can have a real effect on our day-to-day lives. But in the ancient world, the results of those tensions were far more acute. Elijah's servant would have known that if that army breached the city walls, at best it would have meant that they were all carried off into captivity, and at worst, there'd be a massacre. Excuse me. as he looked out at this army his mind must have been running through all the different possibilities that could have meant for them he was afraid but in verse 16 Elisha responds don't be afraid he knew it looked bad but he knew that God was in control and that to bring comfort to his servant he was about to point one lift the veil Now when we see something that alarms us or scares us and someone says don't be afraid, the first thing we should be asking is why should I not be afraid? What reason do you have that this scary looking thing shouldn't scare me? Well Elijah says those who are with us are more than those who are with them. I can imagine the servant looking out at this army of horses and chariots and thinking What on earth are you talking about? They've got horses and chariots out there and in here, we've got the ancient equivalent of dad's army, we don't stand a chance. But that's not what Elisha was talking about. He was talking about something far better. Look at verse 17, Elisha prays, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. Elisha wasn't afraid because he could see what was really going on. He could see that although a real enemy besieged them, an even greater army was there to protect them. God's army. Ultimately, Elijah could see that God was bigger than their enemies. Elijah knew that his servant what his servant needed was a proper perspective. What he needed was for God to pull back the ba- veil so that he could see who was really in control. Now, Elisha's servant would have known that God was mighty. He would have known that his God was a rescuing God and he would have known that his God kept his promises. His problem was not a lack of understanding about God. His problem was that his circumstances meant that what he believed in theory had lost any practical reality in his life. He discovered that the greatest distance in the world sometimes can be the 18 inches between a man's mind and his heart. In opening his eyes to see this terrifying angel army, God was showing him that trust in God was not some theoretical hope in the dark. It was a real hope in a real God. There are two things that particularly strike me about what Elijah prays or perhaps more specifically about what he doesn't pray. Firstly, Elijah doesn't pray that God would send an angel army. He prays that his servant's eyes would be open to see what was already there. I remember many years ago looking out of the window in the flat we used to live in. (laughs) And I saw a teenage boy who was blind walking up the road with a white stick. He looked determined, but he also looked pretty cautious and pretty nervous. It looked like his blindness was a recent event. And this was perhaps one of his first trips out on his own. And he did look very scared. It was a really upsetting thing to watch, imagining what might have caused him to lose his vision. But then what I saw after that, I don't think I'll ever forget. You see, walking 20 paces behind the boy was the boy's father. And you could see he was walking as quietly as he could so that his son wouldn't know that he was there. He wanted his son to feel safe, to feel like he could go out on his own and that he'd be able to do that. And he wanted his son to achieve that. But he also wanted to be right there in case anything went wrong. I like to imagine the conversation they had when the boy gets home and he talks about all the things that he did and the dad has to pretend that he's got no idea what he's talking about. It's a wonderful picture of a father loving his son. Christian, do you know that that's the kind of heavenly father that we have? Now God wants us to come to him in prayer. He wants us to ask for things But he's not sitting there with his arms crossed saying, I'm not doing anything until they ask me. He wants what's best for us. He is for his people. And sometimes he's answered our prayers before we've even asked them. God had already sent his angel army to protect his people. Elijah's prayer was effectively, God, show us what you have already done. Show us what you are like. Show us we can trust in you When Christians pray for other Christians Maybe we should learn from that I've been challenged this week To maybe not pray as I often do That when people are feeling low That God would draw near to them Perhaps the better thing to be praying Is that the people would know That God is already close to them Because he is we have a God who is closer than a brother and who loves us more than we could ever imagine. Why don't we pray that we would recognize and see what is already true? The second thing that strikes me about what Elijah doesn't say is he doesn't pretend that the Armenian army is no threat whatsoever and they, just, they don't even need to think about it. He acknowledges that this is a real problem but that God is still in control. It's so important that we understand this because becoming a Christian doesn't mean that your life is suddenly going to become all peachy and easy. In fact, Jesus warns his followers that it will usually mean it becomes more difficult. But he does promises that he will always be in control and he will always act for his glory and the good of his people. He promises that one day we will look back on our lives and see that even in those really difficult things, God was working for his glory and for our good. When we keep this perspective that God is far bigger than all our problems, it doesn't mean that life will be plain sailing, but it does mean that when storms come, God will always be with us. And although the road ahead may seem uncertain, we can be certain of the destination to which he is leading his people. This passage clearly shows us that receiving that kind of perspective is an answer to prayer. So what do you think my first point of application is? Pray. Pray that God would open our eyes to see what he is really like, to see that he is in control, to see that he is good. (coughs) that we must learn to dwell on what God has already done in the past, what he's doing now, and what he certainly will do in the future. There's a real theme in this passage of God keeping his word. Well, are you reading the promises of God found in the Bible? Are you seeking not only to mentally understand those promises, but allowing joy and hope to cultivate in your heart As you consider what they truly mean for you. (coughs) Are you dwelling on a future with our Lord? A place where there will be no more striving, no more hurting, no more pain or illness or death. But instead, perfect, joy-filled relationship with God which goes on forever and ever. The second thing I want to draw your attention to this morning is point to God shows us what we think we want. Now for the sake of time in our reading, we skipped between verses 17 and 24. In that section, Elijah would pray that God would blind the Aramean army, which God does. Elijah then leads them into Damascus and hands them over to the king of Israel. He basically captures this entire army and gives them over to the king. But in a real act of mercy, rather than killing them all, they give them food and drink and they send them on their way. The trouble is that in verse 24, we see that this act of grace is quickly forgotten by the king Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, who marches back into Israel, this time not just with raiding parties, but with his entire army. And this time they lay siege to the city of Samaria. Now, with no food coming into the city, things get desperate very quickly. We think that inflation is bad today, which it is. But in verse 25, it says that a donkey's head sells for 80 shekels of silver. Did you know that that's over 70 kilograms of silver for a donkey's head? In verses 26 to 29, we read of things being so bad that people begin to eat their own children these verses are supposed to horrify us but they're also supposed to point us to the fact that this very situation was foretold in the days of Moses hundreds of years earlier Israel was rescued from slavery in Egypt and after they were rescued They were shown how to live out their new freedom. God gave them a list of laws and rules that they were supposed to follow. He told them that if you follow these rules, you will know peace and rest. But they failed to keep God's law again and again. God warns them what will happen if they continue to turn his back on them. He tells them very specifically in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Starting from verse 49, he says this, The Lord will bring a great nation against you from far away, from the ends of the earth, like an eagle swooping down, a nation whose language you will not understand. Because of the suffering that your enemy will inflict on you during the siege, you will eat the fruit of the womb, the flesh of the sons and daughters of uh, the Lord your God has given you. There's been 800 years between this prophecy and today's passage that we're reading. And Israel has continued to turn her back on God. Now God has shown patience and grace again and again. But eventually it gets to the point where God says, I've warned you enough times. If you think life really will be better away from me, then why don't you see what that really looks like? There's this wonderful clip on the internet of a young lad who is convinced that unsweetened cocoa powder is gonna taste amazing. I mean, it says chocolate on the box and it looks amazing. His mum warns him again and again, you're not gonna like it, but little Johnny knows best. So in the end, she says to him, okay, fine. You can have some. I'm warning you, you won't like it, but help yourself. So the little boy takes a big spoonful of cocoa powder, thinking it's what he wants. And I think you can see from his response, It turns out unsweetened cocoa powder was not what he really wanted. His mum perhaps did know better. I love the fact that in this last picture, he still looks at his mum like it's her fault. (laughs) Friends, God's laws are there for our good. He's not trying to keep something good from us. He's trying to show us how to live life and live it to the full. We think that life away from God is freedom and pleasure and it might seem like that at first but this passage is a warning. Because God is the source of all that is good the further we stray from him the more we turn our back upon him the more we are rejecting all that is good. If we die rejecting him and still turning our back on him then eventually he will give us What we think we want He will send us to a place Where his grace and his goodness Are completely removed And only his judgment remains The scene at the end of chapter 6 Of parents eating their own children Is horrifying But it doesn't even come close To the thought of an eternity Spent away from the grace and goodness of God If you haven't yet turned back to God, then don't leave it until it's too late. Now hearing from this desperate mother should have reminded the king of Israel of the warnings recorded in Deuteronomy. He should have known that passage. So how did he respond? Well, on face value, it looks good. In verse 30, he tears his robes, revealing he is wearing sackcloth underneath sackcloth was a material used to show repentance and mourning it looks like he's repenting but actually his actions reveal that he still has a heart that is far from God he may well have been upset at the consequences of what had happened at the consequences of his rebellion against God but he wasn't actually sorry that he'd rebelled he was still looking for other people to blame and that's what he does in verse 31 He blames Elisha. At the end of chapter 6, things look utterly hopeless. But chapter 7 points us to a God in whom we can hope. It points us us to point 3, a God who rescues. Now in verse 3 of chapter 7, we meet four lepers who have a pretty hopeless conversation. They say, if we stay at the gate we're definitely gonna die. If we go into the city center, we're definitely gonna die. If we go and surrender to the Arameans, we only might die. (laughs) Essentially they conclude that might die is preferable to definitely dying. So under the cover of darkness, they decide they're gonna walk out to the enemy camp in preparation to surrender. In verse 5, the lepers approach the camp and as they get closer, you can kind of imagine a conversation between them. Why has no one killed us yet? I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. Should we go and have a look in the tent? Yeah, okay. So they go up to a tent and the th- they stood outside. They say, well, I guess we better go in. Why don't you go first? <laughs> Why don't you go first? I tell you what, we'll go in at the same time. We'll all go together. So they step into the tent And what they discover is a miracle. They discover that the army has gone but all the food and supplies and clothing are still there. These lepers had less than nothing and they find abundance. Not just food and water but gold and silver and clothes. Now we often talk about the Christian message being good news. But actually this encounter reminds us that to understand that good news or to ever appreciate that it is good news we do first need to understand the bad news. We must see that the world is just like this city under siege. We instinctively know that. We look around and we see that things are not as they are supposed to be. The world is broken. Pain, suffering, injustice, cruelty. The city was in such a bad way because people had turned their backs upon the living God. The world is the same. The question is, how do we respond to that? It's not enough just to acknowledge that things are bad. If the lepers had done that, they'd still have no hope. Now, we could act like the king of Israel. We could get mad about it and we could look for other people to blame. Or we could humbly acknowledge that the problem is not out there somewhere. But the problem is in each of us, in our own hearts. That our continued rebellion against God has contributed to the mess that we see all around us. We can lament not just over the state of the world, but the state of our own hearts. And the fact that we have been separated from God because we've rejected him. Now when Jesus came 2,000 years ago, he came To rescue, he came as a savior and he is going to return. But make no mistake, when he does, he is coming to judge, and his judgment will be terrible. We will be like the people of Samaria, we will have no hope of saving ourselves because he gives everyone exactly what they deserve for turning away from a holy God. It is very bad news. But it's that bad news which makes the good news so good. The the lepers realise (coughs) that doing nothing is not an option. So they walk out of the city hoping to find mercy. Like the lepers, we must realise that our only hope is not from ourselves but from someone else. We need mercy and we need to be rescued. Their choice is between definitely dying and possibly dying. I'm very glad to say that our prospects are far better. They approached an enemy in the hope of mercy. We can approach the friend of sinners and he not only promises mercy, but blessings (coughs) and adoption into his family. They went out with no invitation. We have an invitation. Jesus says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Their great hope was simply to postpone death. Jesus promises everlasting life. They found earthly treasures. We are given treasures greater than anything this life can ever bring. We are given the greatest gift of all, a relationship with the perfect God himself, a gift which is received through faith in Jesus, which can never be taken from us. If we continue to reject God, then eventually he will give us what we think we want and we will discover that that thing is terrible. But friends, he calls out with open arms to anyone who recognizes that they need a saviour. He offers another way. He sent his son to die on a cross and take the punishment that his people deserve. He was punished so that we could be forgiven. This is not some cold, distant God. This is a God who loves his people so much that despite our rebellion and our sin, he sent his son to die in our place. If you don't know Jesus, then will you put your trust in him? Will you dare to believe that life can be better? That life really is better with him than without him? Will you, like like the lepers in this passage, recognise that you need a rescuer? And will you turn to him? If you do already know Jesus, if you have trusted him, what are you going to do now? The lepers love the fact that they've been rescued but in verse 9 they turn to one another and they say what we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news and we're keeping it to ourselves. What Jesus offers to those who turn to him is too good to keep to ourselves. We're not called to share the good news because it earns us something or because it's a sign that we're better than anyone else. We're called to do it like these lepers because it is news that is too good to keep to ourselves. Will you, like these lepers, return to those who are living in fear, fear of death, fear of a hundred other things, and will you return to them with a message of freedom, a message of salvation, and a message of hope? Will you point a broken world to a living world? saviour will you point people to jesus christ